Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Would you watch Law & Order HAU Housing Accountability Unit? Probably not. I actually watched uh, <laughs> I, I watched one episode of Show Me a Hero, that HBO special about housing, and I was like, this is too real. I can't I need a, I need something outside of work. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I'm Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, October 13, 2021, we're talking about what could... We're talking about some scary stuff. What could be (laughs) the governor and the legislature's new pivot in California's housing problems in the immediate future. Yes, and I was making the siren noise because you're going to be hearing a lot about the housing police housing accountability over the next couple of years as the governor and state housing department have pledged to do a better job of enforcing the laws already on the books that aim to encourage cities to permit new development. They've even just created a new housing accountability unit, capital H, capital A, capital U, within the housing department to do this, or I guess as it's better known, law and order HAU. So I thought the sirens were for like Friday the 13th or something like no, 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 related. No, this, is, this, is this is the housing law and order. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Love it. Could be scary for some cities. So with big zoning discussions seemingly settled at the legislature and a new cycle of state housing goals upon us, there's already been debates over whether cities are adequately planning for their future housing targets. So we're going to get into what all of that means and what's behind that and what the Benson and Stabler, if you will, of the HAU are going to be doing. And we have a great guest to discuss all of this. It's Victoria Fierce. She's director of operations at a group called the California Renters Legal Advocacy, or CARLA. So Victoria is an Oakland-based activist and early organizer of the Yes in My Backyard, or YIMBY movement, who's recently secured a couple of pro-housing wins in the courts. And we'll be talking about how organizations like hers are suing cities to ensure that they keep their housing promises. But first, we have the most important and vital segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. It is our look at the most absurd or strange tale, nugget, anecdote that provides a window or fleshy green covered insight into the state's housing problems. And Liam, this fortnight's avocado truly takes us to your stomping grounds this time. Indeed. So oftentimes in cities, particularly smaller ones, you'll see these signs and petitions saying, save the thing. Usually it's like, save this historic church or a century old tree or whatever from some dastardly developer's plans to, in the words of Joni Mitchell, pave paradise and put up a parking lot or some such. But here in Santa Monica, there's a twist on the theme. Walking around town the past few months, I've seen many signs that say, quote, Save parking structure three. Not parking structure three. Okay, (laughs) what is that? Yes, so I figured you may ask this, Manuela, and I'm here to answer your questions. Uh, So parking structure (laughs) three is a multi-story parking structure right on the edge of Santa Monica's pedestrian mall, the Third Street Promenade. The city of Santa Monica has plans to tear this structure down to build a 150-unit affordable housing complex with 50 of those units reserved for supportive housing, specifically for homeless residents. 
This plan has attracted the ire of some Third Street merchants who are wondering where all the people will park. So the signs that say save parking structure three, that's pretty good. I'm still waiting for the real ripe avocado here. So in late September, L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who has made a point of portraying himself as capital T, tough on homeless, went to a forum in Santa Monica on the fate of parking structure three. And here, according to the Santa Monica Daily Press, he said this about the plan to replace the parking lot with affordable housing. Quote, that is about the dumbest idea short of invading Iraq said Villanueva. He added that <laughs> affordable or homeless housing should not be located near tourist attractions. There we go. So I think we could say regardless of the merits of tearing down Santa Monica's parking structure three to replace it with affordable housing, it's a bit, let's say, hyperbolic to compare that decision to a more than decade-long war that caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah, and I think that was probably the effect that he was going for. Just reading about this press conference, found it a little ironic that when asked how he would handle things differently, he said he would also build more emergency homeless shelters just elsewhere. Okay, so let's now go to the meat of our episode, and that's this shift to accountability with a capital A. So why don't I start kind of by setting the scene here. Over the past few years at the state capitol, much of the energy in housing debates has been taken up by legislation and discussion over zoning, right? You know, how many homes are allowed to be built by transit or in single-family neighborhoods and the like. So this roller coaster really started in 2018 with Senate Bill 827, which would have allowed mid-rise development pretty much anywhere in the state near transit. That bill failed, and the discussion continued through its failure and the failure of its successor, Senate Bill 50. And then ultimately, this year, with the passage of Senate Bill 9, which now allows for, come January 1st, at least duplexes to be built on most single-family zone parcels across the state, no matter where the local governments want them to or not. And feeding this discussion is Governor Gavin Newsom, who campaigned, as we've said, on a promise to support the construction of 500,000 homes a year, which is more than quadruple the state's annual rate now, or 3.5 million by 2025. And Liam, you covered some of those first strategies he took when he came into office. That's right. So in his first budget in early 2019, the governor talked about wielding a big stick he wanted to withhold transportation dollars from cities, which is very important to those cities that had slow housing production. But he immediately faced significant pushback, including from his fellow Democrats in the legislature, who thought this idea went too far in punishing cities. So he quickly abandoned that. And it's become pretty clear ever since then, really, that instead of these sort of big frontal attacks against cities' development authority, Senate Bill 9 aside, a lot of the fights that we've been seeing have been relegated to what's known as the RENA process. So I love October and Halloween, so I'm really glad that we're spending a bunch of this episode talking about something spooky like RENA. So Liam, you've written about this before. Can you summarize what is that? So RENA, it's an acronym, which we try to avoid in this podcast, but unfortunately, this is a very important one. It stands for the Regional Housing Needs Assessment or Regional Housing Needs Allocation, depending on who you're talking to. Since 1967, a long time ago, the state has required every city to plan for housing growth. This process has evolved significantly significantly over the years. And right now, every eight years, essentially, every city has to make sure they have enough space within their boundaries 
to allow for new growth based on a projection of what's needed population-wise by the state housing department. So this process goes in cycles and it's done region by region. Right now, we're entering a new housing. It's called the housing element, to add another obscure term to this process. The San Diego region is first in this sort of housing element cycle process. Then the LA region, rest of Southern California. After that, the Bay Area. And Manuela, unfortunately, I'm here to tell you, perhaps not shockingly given the bureaucracy that's involved, that this process has been bad. Cities over the years, over the decades, have frequently ignored the rules in the housing element with little to no penalty. They've said, for instance, that a site of a fully leased shopping mall was going to become new housing in previous cycles, despite there being no chance of that happening. They've designated median strips within their communities as places where new housing would be built. So you median get the strips idea. like between where cars between, drive. Like roads. Exactly. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Kind of get the idea. Idea, right. And also it, it really hasn't worked, even when you've sort of cities have acted in like good faith on this. There was a report recently out from UCLA's Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies that said nearly 70% of the new housing production in the Bay Area over the last eight-year cycle did not occur on property designated for development in cities' housing plans. So we're spending all of this time and effort planning where new housing is supposed to go, and yet it's not even really going there anyway. And just to clarify, like it does take quite a bit of time and effort for cities to actually make all these plans. Even the state has had to step in and help some smaller cities actually make their plans. So the fact that they're going pretty much nowhere is pretty significant and telling of how useless this process can be. To your point, this all can be like a six months to a year's long, in some cases, mm-hmm. more long process of identifying these areas where growth is supposed to go. You know, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. Oftentimes, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to hire consultants to do this, let alone staff time and a lot of energy in public meetings. So it's very involved. No question about it. And now legislators and the governor's office say that things are changing. Over the past four years or so, they passed some new laws to turn this paper-pushing exercise supposedly into a real vehicle for change. They've tightened up rules about whether a city is allowed to say a site can be used for housing, like let's say a mall that's currently in use. They've about doubled the number of homes cities need to plan for. They've said that on fair housing grounds, cities can't plan for low-income housing only in already impoverished areas, but elsewhere as well. And they have to allow for some in wealthier, typically lower density neighborhoods as well. And relatedly, they've shortened the number of public hearings on certain housing projects and made it harder for cities to deny projects when they already comply with the rules. And that's something that Victoria is going to be talking to us about. And the governor has been moving in this sort of direction as well. Pretty quickly after he took office, he said that his sort of new housing production goal wasn't going to be that 3.5 million new homes that we referenced earlier, but rather the total number of homes statewide that cities need to plan for through this housing goal process. And longtime listeners may recall our interview in the before Manuela times. We won't even mention who was involved previously. Um, But uh, BMT, before Manuela times, last December with Jason Elliott, he's the governor's top housing advisor. And Jason said that the governor was really going to pivot to enforcing laws 
that were already on the books rather than trying to push a bunch of new policies. And that seems to be where this housing accountability unit comes in. Manuela, and this was again, I guess, a new idea that was put forward in this year's budget, the 2021 budget. Manuela, what can you tell us about it? So the Housing Accountability Unit is a new branch of the Housing and Community Development Agency approved through this year's budget. Got about $4.65 million of funding. The governor's office told me that the 25-person team will, quote, ensure that local leaders fulfill their legal responsibility to plan, zone for, and permit their share of the state's housing needs. The state will be doing everything from helping a city review their housing element to drafting memos to explain implementation of new laws. And most importantly, they'll be escalating enforcement actions for cities that don't comply with the RENA process or any of the other housing laws on the books we've discussed. That's a pretty tall order. So a lot of it remains up in the air. Which laws will they be prioritizing? And what lays in store for cities when they break the rules? So what else do you make of the governor's sort of pivot here. What do you see the state housing department and Newsom doing in this vein right now? So now that a bunch of laws have passed, giving the state a lot more enforcement capacity, you see here the governor and the legislature really staffing up the agency to make sure that these laws are followed. There was a lot of attention paid to rezoning around SB9 and SB10, as we've discussed on the podcast before. But there's also a lot of rezoning that goes on in the housing element process. And the issue is that cities don't really follow through. For example, to ensure that the strip mall that they say is going to be used for housing is actually developed. So I think that this is a big step in that direction to actually enforce those laws. But it remains to be seen how much of a difference it'll make. Newsom began his governorship with a pretty clear message that if cities didn't follow the rules, they would be punished. That was the case in Huntington Beach in Orange County in 2019, which he sued because he had not approved enough land for low-income housing. That was like within the first month, I remember, mm-hmm. the first month he was governor, he made a big show of that lawsuit and then kind of tried to cajole other cities to come into compliance with their housing plans as well. And there have been a couple other lower profile moves by HCD to show that they are enforcing housing laws. For example, recently telling Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, Redondo Beach, critiquing their housing element drafts. I'm curious if this really is an issue of them not having enough staffing. And so how much of a difference creating this new unit is actually going to change things. Liam, what do you think we're seeing? I think in some ways with this sort of decision-making kind of resigned ourselves to a level of drudgery here. As we've discussed, you know, the governor and legislature have pretty much said that they're unable or unwilling to force these sort of massive zoning changes upon cities. By that, I mean like on single family parcels, you must allow apartments or, you know, mid-rise apartments or, you know, near transit, you must allow for 10 storage or something like that. Instead, what they've done is they've pushed all these fights over really over allowing like a lot new growth onto this 50-year-old state housing law infrastructure that's historically been pretty rickety, ineffective, opaque, and 
disliked by basically everybody involved, cities included, not only for the fact that there is some pressure, of course, through this take away or abrogate some city's control, but also I've talked to city council members who are like, we know this process doesn't do anything. It doesn't work. It's paperwork. We're upset at having to go through the exercise. So now what you're doing is you're basically going to have the potential for years of 539. And that's because there are 539 cities and counties in California. So the potential for five years of 539 separate fights over zoning in a way that's really hard for the public to understand with the potential and then almost guarantee for there to be kind of uneven outcomes in terms of what cities are forced to do, forced to plan for, and how it ultimately is enforced. And so I think we're going to like see a lot of administrative challenges and legal challenges and the like, and it really remains to be seen how far the state's going to go in enforcing the laws that are on the books, what even some of the laws end up meaning. I think we're going to have to get clarity from the courts and what cities may do to push back or not. And you've already seen some consternation here about how the process is going. Over the weekend, there was an editorial in the San Francisco Chronicle that criticized the state housing department for signing off on some housing plans in San Diego communities that didn't appear to comply with fair housing rules that we mentioned earlier. This editorial and how this process is already shaping up with these laws already on the books does raise some questions about how far the new enforcement mechanisms are going to go. And I think it's worth mentioning here that we had hoped to have someone from the state housing department on the podcast to discuss all of this, but unfortunately they canceled the interview. You guys are always welcome to come on and chat. So before we get to our actual guest this time, Manuela, why don't you give us a brief rundown of what this organization is and the laws that they've been suing over? So I mentioned how the state is pivoting to more of a watchdog role. They're not the only ones though. A bunch of pro-housing advocacy groups have been working on these issues for some time already, and Carla is one of the newer ones. This three-person nonprofit says they're defending the hard-won wins of the legislature in the housing realm to make sure that these laws actually translate to more housing. More recently, they won a lawsuit against the city of San Mateo, just south of San Francisco, which had rejected a permit to build a 10-unit building that was compliant with its own existing rules and general plans. Okay, 10 units, but then this victory is actually significant that it led the court in Huntington Beach to reverse another decision where it had originally denied 48 homes in Surf City, USA, because ultimately those two complied with the city's own rules. But we'll let Victoria get into the details of that. And let's just go right there. Let's talk to Victoria. So we're here with Victoria Fierce. She is Director of Operations at California Renters Legal Advocacy, or CARLA. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks. It's good to be here. So to dive right in, the first question is pretty simple. We are wondering, why are you suing cities that deny housing projects? A big reason is that for the most part, Just the way that the laws in California have been written over the last 40 some years is that a lot of cities just have basically no penalty, no consequence for denying housing in violation of state law. And it's only recently that the state and the attorney general specifically has been given more power to be able to do law enforcement that they're set out to do. And so CARLA was created because of a project in Lafayette, a city out here in the Bay Area 
that the developer had proposed 300 some units of housing in an apartment complex. And the city said, oh, well, it's too big, which is like very vague. It's not subjective. And it's just like this last minute objection the city put forward. And so they denied the project and then we sued and it kind of has snowballed into this. And what we've learned in the many years is like developers are in the business of making friends. They're not going to sue a city if their revenue is on the line and cities don't really have any consequences from the state attorney general for whatever reason. But somebody has to be enforcing the law and surprisingly, there wasn't really anybody doing it until we came along and now we do that. And it's been wildly successful. I know that there was a lawsuit a long time ago or a little more than a decade ago that the then Attorney General Jerry Brown against the city of Pleasanton, also in the Bay Area over their housing plan. And so there have been some, but certainly you guys have been more engaged in this issue recently and kind of spreading the wealth around the state. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you have been relying a lot on changes to the Housing Accountability Act. And that's a particular law that essentially says that cities cannot deny projects that are in line with their growth plans. And so how do those changes to that law sort of affected what it is that you folks are doing? It's really just kind of given us more ammunition and given us more strength. Because one thing that we've sort of run up against in particular with our recent San Mateo case is that, again, for the longest time, a lot of cities, they were just given this kind of blank check from the courts, judicial deference towards the cities, that if a city says they don't want a thing, then we should believe the city because that's just how local control works. It's police powers. It's just like sort of the foundation of modern land use litigation in California. And with all these new laws that are coming out, in most of these new laws that the legislature is writing, they're putting a little phrase into it that says this something something is a matter of statewide importance. And the reason for that is it kind of gets at this foundation of the legal principles of giving deference to cities and it takes that away, which is also why it's kind of been an uphill fight in the courts is judges are used to giving cities deference on this. And we're flipping that on its head because the reality is we're no longer 500 some isolated little villages around the state of California where one thing happens in one city and it doesn't affect the other. We, in fact, do live in a society and what happens in one place affects another city. In particular, housing, you know, housing denials. One city doesn't build housing. Those people still who might be moving there still have to have a place to go. And so now that problem becomes somebody else's problem. And a lot of the laws give us the ammunition to kind of flip that around and say, no, actually, you have to take care of your people in a way that doesn't burden other cities with your own shortcomings. We mentioned there are a lot more laws on the books giving this process more teeth. What do you think is still necessary? What other bills to actually make this process more effective? There's, I guess, like a couple potential flaws with the state of affairs right now, in particular, the Housing Accountability Act, which one of the big laws that we enforce. So the, the HAA says that you have to approve a housing development if it meets the zoning ordinance. It also says that cities are not exempted from following through on CEQA and a couple of other laws. And the problem with the way that CEQA is written is that it requires a city to look and analyze a project and it doesn't 
let you consider an improvement as being better project. It only looks at the status quo and it says if it makes the status quo worse, then the project is bad. So CEQA, as we've discussed on many episodes of the podcast, is essentially this environmental regulation that you have to do for most forms of development, including many housing projects. It's basically say how this is going to affect the environment in some way and potentially mitigate, if you will, some of the ways that it will or does. And that could oftentimes is a very lengthy, sometimes very expensive, sometimes very litigious sort of process. Part of the reason why it is such a litigious statute is because it's sort of this self-enforcing thing. It's on cities. The cities have the burden to follow CEQA. And so if a city doesn't follow through with it, then any public citizen can come along and file a lawsuit and say, I'm not happy with the way that you did it. And the city has to fight it. There's not really any kind of higher level oversight over CEQA is the responsibility of every single city, which means that every 500 plus city in California has to have its own legal department, its own defenses against this, and they have to have this huge giant process. And when cities are charged with implementing this, the Housing Accountability Act says they can't skip that. But because of the way CEQA was done, there's a lot of loopholes that you could find in it. And the city could come back months into the process and say, well, actually, we changed our mind on how we want this process to be done. We decided we want a different kind of study. So we're going to throw everything out and start over from scratch. And then there's not really anything stopping them from coming back months later, even years later, and being like, well, we didn't like how this worked out in the first place. So we're going to go back. And you can essentially just get like paralyzed by this analysis over and over and over because people aren't happy about something or another. It's rather subjective. It's not very objective. It's surprisingly very little science actually goes into a CEQA analysis. It's mostly just a legal document that tries to keep cities from being sued for not following the rules. It's not actually a good environmental law, I think. Sounds like you're saying that there's sort of Manuela's original question was what you think need to be done to make this entire process or the, the Housing Accountability Act and related measures more effective. It sounds like what you're saying is well, unless and until there are some significant changes to this environmental law too, you think that there are a lot of gaps that are sort of still out there. There's a lot of gaps like that. I think something else that would also just really help with this is charging the attorney general and just building up this new accountability department. Recently, we saw a news release from the state's Department of Housing and Community Development where they're building their own accountability unit. But even then, the press release only described in terms of oh, well, we're giving technical assistance to cities, which is you know, a far cry from actually saying, we're going to make sure that you follow these laws. It's more, we're going to help you comply with the laws as close as possible so you can maybe avoid a lawsuit in the future, which like, sure, that's fine. It you know, follows the letter of the law, but not necessarily the spirit of housing accountability. So I want to ask a different kind of question. What sympathies do you have towards local governments, city council members, through the housing approval process. Have there been times when you've said to yourself, you know, I get why, even if there's some quirk in the underlying zoning or whatever that says this project technically should be allowed, I get why the city council or the city government or various neighborhood groups don't like this or don't want this. I do have some sympathy for them because, again, we're reversing basically 40 years of precedent in a very, very short window, and change is scary for people. And people are used to having this sort of back pocket, last chance, so we can change it at the last minute. But, like, that's been wrong for the last 40 years. That doesn't make it right now. I can sympathize with people who are used to this way of things, and suddenly now they have to actually, like, 
think long term. They have to work on their housing elements and their zoning ordinances, and they have to actually think with an eye to the future. Whereas previously, you're writing your update to your housing element, and it's like, oh, well, we can just change our plan later. You can't do that anymore. You have to set the rules up front. You have to make it fair for everybody, not just large developers with more money than God, but like also small mom and pop developers who just want to build triplexes or 10-unit buildings, or the poor family that's trying to give some housing to their elderly family who wants to downsize, and so they're just trying to build an ADU in their backyard. And they don't have more money than God. They can't fight these unpredictable processes. Is it ever right for a city to deny uh, housing projects, especially one that would be zoned appropriate? I follow what the HAA says, which is that you're allowed to deny it for very specific, previously identified health and safety standards. And you have to actually like quantify in advance. In a lot of these debates, a thing I hear that comes up a lot is, oh, well, we can't build in fire zones. And these laws require us to build in fire zone. That's usually not true. Because if you can write a law in advance that says building in a fire zone is a health and safety hazard and this many number of people will die if you do it, that's a legitimate, valid reason to deny a project. You know, most of the cases that we encounter, and maybe that's just the nature of us going after these scofflaw cities, is for the majority of these cases, it's people saying, oh, it's too big, or we don't like renters, or I'm scared of something or another, and it's just like unfounded, sort of, you give people this veto vote, which just isn't fair for the months and months and months of work and community outreach that previously went into the zoning that the project now complies with. It just kind of takes all this work and this community input throws it out, and then next time zoning updates come around, people are like, well, we threw out the plans last time, so why does it matter if I give my input now? And people lose faith in government, and it's just this downward spiral. We've been talking about Rena quite a bit, and so I wanted to ask you very simply, like, good or bad, does it need reform, or is it just this antiquated process and needs to be scrapped and replaced with something better? If you'd asked me that in the beginning of 2019, I would have said it needed scrapped. But since then... Rena has been given a lot more teeth. One bill that comes to mind is, of course, SB 35, which says if a city is falling behind on their regional housing needs allocation, the Rena numbers, then they are required to approve projects without debate, without discretion, that included some amount of affordable housing because they have to meet their RENA goals. I think that's also a really interesting question because like, I don't know if you know this, but I served on the Bay Area's Regional Housing Needs Methodology Assessment Committee. I don't even want to know what the acronym to that is. <laughs> we just called it the HMC, the Housing Methodology. And we were the group and it was me plus 40 some other people, including elected and unelecteds. And we set up the formula that determined what number every city got. And in the process, it was really interesting. Some people who were on the committee who had been on the committee before in previous cycles, and they were like, oh, well, none of these numbers really matter because Rena is toothless. It doesn't have any effect on anything. But I'm like coming in from this with the law enforcement perspective of having helped get some of these teeth bills passed. Well, actually, I can see why you say that. But now that's not the case. We have teeth and here's the parts of the law. And it was kind of dramatic by like the end of the whole meetings and all that. And we had our arena numbers. And by the end, people were like, these numbers actually mean something now. Like we have laws that will give these things effect and force and actually produce housing. And I think that's just like a growing sentiment within sort of the the arena sort of community of people who watch that and pay attention and, and build those plans. 
So Manuela and our portion of the show have been talking a lot about what appears to be not just the governor, but the legislature as well. Looks like going forward, kind of moving these debates that have been in the legislature, taking up all the oxygen about zoning over the past few years. Now to this sort of what appears to be this shift towards enforcing laws that are already on the books rather than promoting a bunch of new policies. Is that your read of what you're seeing as well? And what do you make of that? That's a good way to put it. It's kind of interesting with Carla. We've got a lawsuit in Huntington Beach right now that we recently got some more documents in it. And somebody in one of the documents is arguing that, well, these laws are just so hard to keep up with because they're constantly changing this and that. And like, I can understand that because again, for 40 years, things have been kind of stagnant. And now suddenly there's rules you have to follow and it can be a bit overwhelming. And so I think it's okay for us to actually take a little bit of time and enforce the books that are already on the laws. Adding more laws that say you can't do this, this and that when it's already illegal doesn't really like help the situation. And so focusing more on enforcement, I think is really good. Obviously, there's a lot of room for improvement in the laws that we have right now. But at the same time, with all the new laws, I'm sure there's other loopholes and stuff that will be found. And we have to sort of find those before we can close those, so to speak. So focusing more on enforcement, I think, is really good. But that doesn't mean that we can't stop fixing loopholes that we are finding. Just that we have a bunch of tools now. They're very sufficient, I feel, for a lot of instances. And we need to support people doing enforcement and make sure the state's able to step up and do enforcement of the laws that we already have. Just to talk a little bit more about the San Mateo case and Huntington Beach, what do you make of the fact that the judge in Huntington Beach vacated her order in your favor after the appeal court's judgment in San Mateo? Obviously, because like being on the winning side of that, I think it's great. So we actually had a discussion among our team at Carla earlier this morning about that case. And uh, we learned that that's actually the first time the judge has ever been, you know, in the entire history of this judge being on the bench, that they have ever reversed a ruling. I think that's maybe 20 years or something they've been on the bench. And so like, I think that that itself is a big thing. The fact that we had this one lawsuit, sorry, in San Mateo, and it's working its way through, and it took about two years to get up to the appeals court. And then suddenly we answered this question that had been essentially the original ruling in Huntington Beach was the HAA isn't clear on whether or not it's actually constitutional. And then suddenly we have this ruling that says it's in fact constitutional, and here's more details about implementation of it. And then suddenly to turn around and be like, oh, well, the judge had it exactly wrong. It's like the exact opposite of whatever. So it does make sense that she would reverse it, I guess. Again, it's the first time in, I think, her career that she's ever done something like that. And I think that's really significant. What that obviously shows is that now that you have an appellate court decision in your favor on this, on the constitutional issues and otherwise, that obviously then sets a precedent for really around the state in terms of what this law means and what it doesn't mean. Are there any other cases that you folks are involved in now? Right now, we're actually done with lawsuits for a bit. We're looking for new stuff. During the pandemic, it's been very exhausting to just work on even just these two. Again, we're just a small nonprofit team of three. And so it's a little bit nice to take a break for a little bit, but it doesn't mean that we're done. So as far as lawsuits, you know, we're actually going to be closing for next week for a much-deserved holiday after all these victories. We're actually tired of winning, so to speak. So once we come back, we'll find some more work and we'll find some new stuff. We might have some stuff with ADUs queued up. We uh, are also particularly excited about the passage of SB9 and SB10. And we're working on providing some assistance to cities to be able to comply with that, which of course means that there will be cities who refuse that assistance and we will see them in court when it happens. 
So I want to ask, there are 539, as we've discussed, cities and counties, umpteen housing projects, some that get approved, some that get denied. How do you folks decide and choose when there is a case? We don't have a very complicated criteria. Generally, we go after the cities that are very exclusionary. They're wealthier. They're whiter than most of the cities in California. They've got a bad history of being scofflaw cities. In fact, our priority list of cities that we are watching wasn't actually created by us. It was created by another organization who I believe Livable California or one of their affiliates. And they uh, put forward this resolution trying to get cities to sign on to, I think, a ballot proposition saying that we want to enshrine local control. And so they put like a list up on their website of all these cities who are saying, we reject the state's assumption of zoning powers. And we're like, oh, cool, thanks. You just created a list of all the cities that we know are trying to fight this. So we're just going to watch you guys. It's been very convenient. So yeah, we go after wealthier, whiter, exclusionary cities that have a history of fighting the state on housing, kind of like our biggest criteria for selecting that. And of course, you know, if we have an opportunity to make new law, which is very difficult to like foresee in advance. But having said that, when San Mateo Project first came to city council and they were like, oh, we don't believe that this is constitutional law. We're just going to kind of ignore it. I was at the meeting and at the time I was like, I think this could be a big thing. And it was just kind of like an inkling. I was still sort of new to working in the law. Fast forward two years later and I was right about that. So I'm pretty proud about that. You know, when creating new law, the appellate court could have gone the other, like the same way the trial court did. And then you'd be like, oh, no, I did a horrible thing from my perspective. Right. So, I mean, yeah, but that didn't happen. So I try not to think. about <laughs> So you've been part of the Yimby movement for a while. What do you make of criticisms that Yimbys aren't sensitive enough to some of the concerns raised by low-income communities of color in terms of the type of housing that's promoted and tenant protections. I do hear a lot of that criticism and concerns about that. And I think a lot of that comes from sort of extremely online spaces. These decisions about where housing developments come forward and are approved and discussed aren't happening on Twitter. They're not happening on Facebook. They're happening in city councils. And they're happening in the email inboxes of city councilors. And the people who are out there and actually doing the work, like this is the stuff that we think about. And I include myself in that set of people. There's a lot of people who haven't necessarily met a Yimby person or Yimby identifying person in person. And they've only heard about this character from the internet. There's, of course, well-moneyed interests who are very invested in making sure that a lot of these communities stay wealthy and white and gated. And so they will invent all kinds of propaganda and people fall for it. On the other hand, there are very valid criticisms and complaints to heard about that. And it's also important to remember that Yimbys aren't a monolith. There's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of people. East Bay for Everyone is one in particular that I founded here in Oakland in the East Bay. And we've taken a lot of that to heart is that, you know, we've done a lot of thinking and a lot of work on why is it that people might come to these conclusions? How can we better ourselves? How can we better listen to these communities that say aren't being listened to? And how do we support them? And we think that's borne out by the coalitions that we're part of and the organizations that we do actually end up working with. To sum it up, I guess, there's a lot of people who just never really met a Yimby and they just have this cartoonish idea of what one is and what they stand for. But like once you talk to them, people who are actually out on the ground doing the work, none of that's really true. Real Yimbys are the ones who do listen to those criticisms and take it to heart and are like, okay, I will be better at it. 
I can tell you, I mean, I've talked to numerous community groups in East LA, South LA that aren't necessarily made up of folks who are very online, who share some of these criticisms about, again, not paying attention to housing in, that's most needed in those communities. Can you just sort of walk us through, if there's no particular example that you can point to, some of the ways you sort of feel that these criticisms are being heard, if you will? So yeah, I was around during the rent control when the state ballot prop, whatever the number was, had come forward. And there was some contentiousness around YIMBY groups between the more pro-rent control factions versus the rent control will kill all housing kind of doomerous sort of group. You can probably tell what side I landed on. A lot of that came out of previous years of listening to people and working with, in particular, like the Oakland Tenants Union, which is a group out here in Oakland. And they would come to one of our meetings every once in a while and be like, can you guys like come and support rent control? And like, here, let us explain exactly why this is the case. And then we would take that to our Slack discussion spaces, our forums, and we would talk amongst ourselves. And a lot of the reason why it went forward is because many of us YIMBYs are kind of living in that situation of like, you know, I have a nonprofit salary. I'm not exactly a wealthy person. Not all of us work in tech. We don't have tech salaries. And so we actually are making less than six figures. And so we have to live in that space. It's not necessarily poverty, but it's also not living terribly comfortably. And so having our own like lived experiences on that and relating it to our own selves and talking about it and coming out on the other side being like, actually, this wouldn't be the end of the world if we supported rent control. And we should because I myself know like 30 people in rent control. I started a tenant union in my previous apartment building and it was a rent controlled building. And all of us there understood why rent control was important and why it's important to listen to the people who can't make it to a Wednesday night meeting at 4 p.m. to talk about a planning commission thing or something. And I think another big part of it too is just like we were going to the meetings a lot and we would look around and look and see who exactly was there. And my partner is not white, they're a person of color, and they would look around and be like, wow, there's literally nobody here who looks like me. This is a problem that my kind of people, queer people, trans people, aren't being heard because we're not given an opportunity to show up to these meetings. And so we need to make sure that we don't reproduce that system of inequality going forward. Well, Victoria, anything else you want to add or share or emphasize to our very vast and very powerful uh, audience? They should donate to Carla because it's my job. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never miss an opportunity to take a platform. Other than that, I keep fighting the good fight. The real enemy here are people who want to stop housing at all costs. They're the Huntington Beaches. They're the Sausalitos, the Sonomas, the Lafayettes of California. We're not going after West Oakland. We want West Oakland to thrive. And we have to take down Lafayette. We have to take down Palo Alto. And these places that are very outwardly vocal about how segregationist they are. And those are the real enemies and we have to unite behind them. And I think that's what we're working for. And we're doing a really good job at it. And this, again, overturning 40 years of bad law and legislation is not going to be an overnight thing. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. All right, Victoria, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're offering here, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. This is very important so that new people can discover us and all of our comedic stylings. Our editor is Victor Frigueroa. Victor, thank you so much as always. I am Liam from the Los Angeles Times and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters. Thank you for listening. My Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. <laughs>